Drawing from the Well is a podcast series from the youth wellness movement. We are educators, researchers, healers, parents, and community members striving to repurpose schools to address the critical wellness gaps in our youth's development. Founded by Community Responsive Education. I entered the teaching profession officially about 16 years ago. At that time, I believed that I had some of the greatest mentorship. And in many ways, I did. And I was following the framework of some of the greatest that I had ever seen do this work. And when I entered, I had a clear vision of what it meant to be a teacher and what it meant to be a successful teacher. And at that time, it was a serious dedication to grind culture, to hustling, to working as much as you needed to do to ensure that all the young people who you were accountable to were well. And at that time, I didn't understand that as a sickness. But in time and through very particular personal experience, I had to, I was forced to confront certain forms of mentorship. I was forced to confront grind culture. I was forced to confront my own spiritual and physical health. So when I entered the profession, what it meant to be a successful teacher was to always be doing something. You were not just teaching in schools, you were also in graduate school. It meant you were a teacher researcher, which was huge in my group. So you were not just learning the ropes of pedagogical practice, but you were conducting youth participatory action research. You were traveling the country. You were presenting at conferences. You were organizing events. You were traveling with your young people. If they needed a place to stay, your home was that place. You worked after hours. You came in on Saturdays. You worked as long as you needed to, to ensure that they were well. This was the culture that I was amongst in entering the teaching profession. When you were tired, if communities and children needed you, you said yes. You always said yes. And in some ways, no one explicitly said this to me, but this was definitely the culture that I was immersed within. And so I remember working at KIPP in my early years, and what was so hard there is it was a, a place where I was hired to work. And I knew that it was not a good fit for me. I knew that young people were being harmed there. And when I was attempting to quit, to center my well-being, I was told by a mentor at the time that you can leave or you can ensure that these young people are taken care of. And I remember she said, if you leave, you will leave them in the hands of people who you know will harm them. And so at 22, I made a pivotal decision to stay and to center myself in that type of grind culture. And so while I was getting up at 5 a.m. every day, because we started school at that time at 7.15, because there was a belief that black and poor children needed to work longer hours. They needed to be more disciplined than others. 
they need to be tested more and that when they could actually work harder and longer, these would be the pathways toward their freedom. This would be the pathway toward their sustainability. And so I was a part of that culture. Our children started school at 7.15 a.m. and got out at around five, which meant I was there longer hours. But I couldn't just do that. I had to also ensure that because I did not believe in these frameworks, I had to create alternatives for them within this structure. So that meant that I was working more. That meant that not only was I teaching English, not only was I teaching ethnic studies classes, but I was also director of student life. I was also creating structures within the school that would resist these oppressive forces that I was there to counteract in the first place. And so I remember doing all these things at 22, working all these hours. I'm in graduate school. I'm working from 6 to 3.30 at that time. And then I'm going to graduate school from 4 p.m. to 10 p.m. my first year. And I remember I'm putting on these events. And at one point as director of student life, I'm in the basement of the school or the gym rather, and we had just had a really powerful school-wide event that I led. And everyone had been dismissed, teachers are gone, and here I am, per usual, tearing the space down, I'm folding chairs, and I remember that my heart started beating uncontrollably. And all I could think of at that time was, I'm going to die at 22 alone. And I took some time to try to catch my breath. And I walked really slowly back up several flights of stairs to get to the office. And I told the office clerk, I need you to call 911. And at 22, I was experiencing health complications because of the compounding stress. At 22, they were extremely alarming. Now at that time, however, I didn't have the types of mentorship where I could be completely honest about my health scare. I didn't have the type of community where I was advised to take a break. If anything, in that moment, when I overcame my panic attack, or whatever it was. I was conditioned to believe that I needed to figure out how to work smarter and that that was weakness being projected and not a sign that I was doing this wrong. And so out of fear to not let down my community, to not let down the folks who I knew were depending on me, or I had internalized that anyway, I worked harder. I now know that unmetabolized trauma can become personality. Or even unmetabolized cultural trauma becomes our racialized identity. And that at that time, as a black woman, I came to believe that it was my job, that it was a part of my purpose to die for the sake of others' wellness to engage in hyperproduction because that's a history that I come from. As black women, we were forced to hyperproduce literally children 
to participate in the enslavement process and then go into the fields and engage and utilize our labor to sustain a society that was invested in our undoing. And so this episode begins to deconstruct that trauma, that trauma that's embedded in our understanding of who we are as teachers, and that trauma that's embedded in those who are responsible for us and our sustainability and our mentorship. And it is our hope that at the end of this episode that these stories, these confessions, these reflections serve as disruptive factors to help us to all access wellness a little bit more. Welcome to Drawing from the Well. I'm your host, Tiffany Marie. Today's episode will center teacher identity and its relationship to wellness. We have Dr. Kevin Nadal, who emphasizes the importance for teachers to develop their identities and how bringing those identities into the classroom can impact student learning and wellness. Youth expert Angus reflects on his journey toward youth wellness by centering his cultural identity. And finally, we have an important interview from poet extraordinaire Jari Bradley, who walks us through their journey of becoming a better educator through the process of developing a critical relationship to self. My name is Kevin Adal. I am a professor of psychology at the City University of New York. I also use he, him pronouns. You know, when I think about identity, I think of many parts. Identity is essentially the ways in which people might be set apart from others, whether it's personality characteristics, whether it's demographic groups that you might be part of, whether it's likes and interests, you know, certain hobbies, talents that you have that might set you apart from other folks. And so identity is something that is so multifaceted. And when we think about our identities, we can think about all of these things, which when they all come together, make you who you are. Identity and wellness are so related, significantly related in many ways. If people have a strong sense of identity, especially young people, in which they feel proud of who they are, uh, they learn about their histories, they have been taught to love the groups that they belong to and the identities that they hold, they're more likely to feel good about themselves. I mean, it seems like it's so simple, uh, but we live in such a world in which so many people, especially young people, are taught to not love themselves, where we see messages that are negative and harmful about different communities and groups, which then they internalize, which could then possibly lead to more mental health issues, uh, more problems adjusting to various life situations, lower self-esteem and many other difficult um, situations that affect wellness. And so I think one thing that's really, really important is from a very young age for young people to be taught 
to really love themselves and to learn about the different identities that they hold and to be accepted when new identities emerge in their lives. Because if young people especially aren't given those sorts of messages, then it can be really easy for them to fall into a hole of not loving themselves, which then leads to things like depression, anxiety, trauma, and so forth. You know, I think one of the things that's really important for teachers, educators, people who work with young people, what they have to realize is that their job is not just what is on paper. It's not just to teach them a curriculum or to coach them, mentor them, whatever it may be. But it's also really to understand the whole picture, to really recognize that this young person, this student that enters your classroom comes with a whole breadth of experiences, whole life of family, community, and perhaps even things like obstacles, struggles, and even traumas. Um, And so what teachers might need to do is really uh, reflect on their own identities, their own experiences, how they may have certain privileges in their lives, and understand how those affect the ways in which they teach and even interact with the young people that they serve. When uh, teachers are able to really reflect upon their own identities, are really able to understand who they are as people, it could help to even forge more real, genuine, authentic relationships with their young people. Um, And it works a lot of different ways, depending on who the teacher is, what their identities are, and so forth. You know, when teachers and mentors have a strong sense of identity, students can pick up on that. They can see and hear and feel how connected their teachers and their mentors are, not just to their own identities, but to just the general ideas of justice and racial equities and so forth. In previous years, education in the field in general would tell teachers you have to leave your identities at the door. You have to teach from a colorblind model. We're not supposed to talk about race or gender or other marginalized identities. We're not supposed to talk about the history of oppression. We're supposed to treat everybody exactly the same. But what research has found over the years is that discussions on race and oppression are actually very beneficial, that ethnic studies and critical race theory can be really instrumental instrumental in children's learning, and especially in learning more about themselves and their identities, which then may result in increased wellness, increased positive self-esteem, and so many other positive outcomes. And so for teachers of color who walk into the room, you know, even if they're discouraged from being their truest and most authentic selves in the classroom, I hope that they find the support that they need to recognize that that's actually valuable to talk about your blackness, your brownness, and even to talk about your womanness and your queerness and your transness. Through the act of even just modeling and representation, that can do a lot in which teachers and mentors, just by them being and doing their work in front of these young people can be a way for these young people to see 
that there is this possibility to integrate your cultural identities into your careers. There is this opportunity for teachers and other mentors to show us the importance of critiquing our systems and still teaching us some of the core things that we may need to learn. So that in itself, I think, is really important. And then on top of that, when teachers are able to talk about themselves and their processes, share little bits of their histories and their identities with their students, they also you know, provide this model for how it is such an important thing to do. We oftentimes grow up in a world in which people are taught to not talk about your race or your gender or religion or any other of these identities, but but we're learning that it's so important for us to talk about them. We don't live in a colorblind world. We don't live in a world in which everyone is treated exactly the same. Ideally, we would live in a world in which people were treated the same, but, but we don't. And so this is why it's so important for young people to learn that their identities are so beautiful and valuable and things to be proud of. And learning that from a very young age could help to build some of those protective factors that they might need when they actually do experience discrimination or when they do experience bullying or when they might experience microaggressions and not know what they are or not have the words to really, you know, articulate what they're experiencing. But if they're taught that from a very young age, then they're able from a very young age to externalize some of these negative messages instead of internalizing them. They externalize by saying, like, that's not me, that's the system, that's oppression, that's racism, that's sexism, as opposed to what so many of us, including myself and many people in my generation, um, where we internalize it. We say, oh, there's something wrong with me. Uh, Oh, my group is uh, inferior or deficient in this way, or, or the way I look isn't beautiful, or the foods that I eat, or the cultural traditions that I partake in are weird or different. You know, we want to change that because, you know, I oftentimes think about if my generation was taught that from a very different age, like, would, would it look differently? Would there be more of us in these leadership roles? Would people have the confidence to pursue other careers that maybe they didn't think they were able to? Would people have less uh, what we call imposter phenomenon, more this notion that we constantly think that we're not good enough or that somebody is going to find out that we actually aren't the experts that we might paint ourselves out to be? And I think that's what they're charged to do is to show them the possibility. Don't just teach them, show them. Show them the possibility and believe in them and affirm for them how important their identities are and how special and valuable their voices and their perspectives are. Next, we hear from Angus, a youth expert whose cultural identity provides him with a framework to navigate the uncertainties of teenage life. Looking back at it, I'm really uneasy with my future and confused due to the fact that society and like my family expectations are always pressuring me to go to college or maybe enter into the military. 
it seems like it's the only path to like success or like it's the only way in a sense and it kind of creates a really limiting perspective for me when I try to take care of my wellness it seems like I'm off track or like my other goals in my life I want to pursue it seems like they're not as important as like college or like military so like it compromises my own happiness in a sense and I'm like always in a state of like anxiousness and like uncertainty thinking like is this really the right thing to do should I be really doing this it does eat a lot at me in certain parts of the day because it's been drilled into my head ever since I was in middle school college this getting a job there's no room for my wellness in a sense and what I really want to do in my life and it's really confusing also because I don't know what to do with my life in a sense I'm about to graduate high school and I don't have a clear path of what I really want to do in life and I think this really applies to a lot of other teens too I don't expect myself to just know what I want to do <laughs> as soon as I leave high school I feel like my current situation can reflect on my middle name which is Kaije Kaije means a warrior returning from war somebody returning from like a hardship and coming back successful and I kind of see myself in that same particular story um, at crossroads and I'm really tense with like what I want to do, how I want to measure my life out, what balancing I should do and stuff. In a way, I found wellness in learning about my own culture. I am really non-fluent in a sense. I'm really broken in speaking Cantonese, Toysanese, and Mandarin. So I find it really hard to communicate with my relatives. It also adds more to attention as like, if I go down this route, I might even become more disconnected with my own culture and my own language and it makes it worse but it kind of gives me a direction of really where I want to go and it comes back to my middle name where I hopefully make the good decision and I come back successful with whatever I want to do but this is a moment where it's a lot of uncertainty but at the same time I have these principles and certain interests that guide me to where I want to go. Next, I'm in conversation with poet, scholar, and mentor Jari Bradley. Jari speaks to their early experiences of using expression as a space for identity formation, the challenges of having mentors who are undergoing their own identity development, and how reflecting on those challenges allowed Jari to unlearn and relearn parts of their identity to better serve their young people. I am here with the one and only, one of the best to ever do this thing called life. Guest, can you please tell us about yourself and how you identify? Sure thing. What's up, everybody? Uh, my name is Jari Bradley. I'm a San Francisco native, Black San Francisco native. I'm a neo-soul 90s R&B enthusiast, poet, gender queer person. That's pretty much the bulk of it. 
you gave us a lot of different variables or titles or identities. And so I want us to dive straight into that. And I'm hoping that you can talk a little bit about your journey with your identity, how you've even come to utilize any of these terms to describe yourself, particularly if you can walk us through like your journey as a child, then maybe as a student. And I know you mentor folks now, you're a teacher. So kind of give us that trajectory as it relates to your identity and your identity development. Yeah, when I was a kid, I was a tomboy. I was around a lot of boys at that time. So whatever they was doing, I was trying to do. You know, I didn't like girly stuff. That just was not my thing. I had all these Barbies, but I would like take the clothes off of them, take the heads off. <laughs> you know, I was in a basketball. I really loved uh, water guns at the time. So, you know, my dress, my style of dress was very, this was the 90s. So I was trying to wear all the stuff that the dudes was wearing. That's how it was. And my grandmother, you know, the blessing that she was, she didn't really police me too much. So she let me wear, you know, what I wanted to wear for the majority of that time period. And that's kind of how I was comfortable being. I remember I was like five years old. I was going to Leonard R. Flynn Elementary School. I don't know if folks know where that's at. But I had on this dress. And it was some lady, it was this teacher that remembered me. She told me the story. She said, I commented on your dress and you turned around and you stuck your tongue at me and you ran off. I hated dresses. I hated them. I was always veering on the masculine side of activity, interest, so forth and so on. I spent a lot of time being interested in what boys and men were doing and just kind of watching what women were doing in my family and that sort of thing not really feeling very connected to femininity in the way that felt most empowering, but it often felt suppressive, submissive, those types of things that I never wanted to be associated with. Navigating that as a kid, I didn't have language other than I don't want to be perceived as a girl in the regular sense. You know, I'm something much more than that. And I'm going to show you, you know, in high school, it was interesting looking back on it because I was still a tomboy, but you know, then you get into the whole thing about relationships and attraction and that sort of thing. So I was mostly watching other people kind of hook up. <laughs> as awkward as that was, just being on the sidelines, you you see these people, this is crazy, right? With other folks who are, you know, on the outside of desirability in that way. It's funny to look back on that now because I really wasn't tripping that hard about being connected to anyone in that way. And my expression at that time was the most important to me because that was when I was really into poetry at that time and really into expressing myself. And I was always bookish. So I didn't really care too much about all that other stuff until much later, much later came. <laughs> and you know, the classic thing that lesbians do, what folks do, fall in love with your best friend you just you start liking them you know you start feeling them that was an indication to me that I had attraction to women at the time you know and I didn't know I would like do little stuff like this is hilarious but when I was at this I would like look at girls booties and be like oh this is a game I'm just looking but I'm not really looking looking but I was looking that was when it was like okay you know this is a real thing for you and I started to explore that. I, you know, I was like, oh, I wonder if I could talk to a girl, you know? So I was like online in the Yahoo chat rooms 
This is how you know we all. Because I was in the Yahoo chat room, spitting my piece, doing my thing, letting them know what's up. So, yeah, um, tricking people is what I was doing, really. <laughs> so, yeah, but it was, you know, it was an exercise and, you know, can I talk to women? So that was like kind of like the first thing. And then I was in my first relationship at like 19, going on 20 with a woman I met via poetry, doing this thing again. At this point, I had gained the language of masculine of center. What was that, 2009? So you had the documentary that just came out about aggressives. You know, and this is a time where, like, with language around gender stuff, we didn't have that. And I didn't see that documentary until maybe a few years later. But, you know, what they called us at that time was, like, butch or aggressives or whatever. That's how I identified I would go on YouTube. This is way back in the day when YouTube was in its initial stages. And I would look up masculine center folks on YouTube. And that like blew my world up around, oh, there's other people like this. How do you act? How do you, okay, that's similar to what I do and my inclinations. And so I started to kind of see that there was a kind of community, at least online, and that provided me with some language and some identification around myself and what I was always experiencing and kind of how I've always expressed my gender. So, yeah. So it really wasn't until I got to grad school that I started to figure out what it meant to be genderqueer. You know, I was well in my 20s figuring that out because I never really felt like either or. For me, I just kind of felt like myself, whatever that meant, you know, and things started to happen to me when I was around maybe 15 or 16. I started getting hair on my face. That was a very hard time for me because I didn't know what was going on. And so I went to my usual tool, YouTube, to go figure out women growing hair on their face. What is this? Came to find out I have polycystic ovarian syndrome. You know, it's a hormonal issue imbalance, but also, you know, a lot of women are plagued with this it causes hair growth and all these things. And folks can go look that up. But in tandem with that, I also felt like just naturally who I am and how I expressed, I didn't really identify with male or female. And so somehow I came upon through finishing San Francisco State in my undergrad uh, in sociology. I think I took like an LGBTQ history class or something like that, which is the first LGBT class I had ever taken when I was well within my 20s, growing up in San Francisco, and that lets you know something, where that word came up. And I was like, that's more in line with how I felt this whole time. So I, by the time I got in grad school, I went to grad school in San Francisco State as well. It fit. It fit. It made sense for me. And I felt most comfortable there. So that's where I stayed. That's Kind of how I, you know, went on to explain my being, my chemistry, you know, what I had going on. And that helped fuel my work as well as both a scholar and as a writer being of that kind of expression. Some listeners might not know there were times where you identified with me as a mentor. I first met you, I think, when you were 16 years old. And what I know is that none of this journey that you just explained was I able to intentionally engage as someone who you even identified at some point as a mentor, which is deep. And that's the case for, unfortunately, a lot of people where folks have 
these journeys, these really important journeys as it relates to their identities and folks who are teachers, who are mentors, have nothing to do with it and maybe don't have the tools or resources to even engage and have not done the identity work themselves as educators to have the language to engage. So I'm interested in how you even understood our relationship as it relates to mentorship. And I'm going to push you to talk about some of the dope moments. And then I'm going to also push you to talk about some of the more challenging moments in that relationship. You know, to, to answer some of that initial question, we met at Upper Bell, which is the college prep program through the TRIO program. They're like, yeah, you're going to be in a special class. And I was like, huh? A special class? They was like, yeah, you're going to be in TIFF's class. And I was like, okay. All right. So we all in orientation. And then I just see somebody come in with cowboy boots on and a backpack. And I'm like, who is this? <laughs> okay. All right. I guess I'm ready to do that. So, yeah, that was the initial introduction. So I'm like, who is this person? First of all, where they had to like preface that I was going to be in this person's class. And upon getting in the class, it was very intense. I had never up until that point met anybody who was as forward as you were at that time, as young as you were at the time, but also like fucking brilliant. At that time, like I was like so bored <laughs> in school. I was so bored. And like I was reading about the Black Panthers and all of that, whatever, but I had never heard of Cornell West. And I just remember coming in and you were talking about Cornell West says something. And I was instantly like, damn, I have been thinking about some of that. But when I was with my friends, and this gets into some of that dynamic that I'm going to get into, when I was with them, they were like, you into that? Man, let's go to the cafeteria and go get this. And whoop -de -whoop. they was not tripping about that like that. They were not as mesmerized. So I was like, damn. Okay, I guess I can't act as into this, but also I'm into this. Like I, this is my shit. Like I actually give a damn about what this lady is talking about. So y'all stripping, but you know, the dynamic at that time. I mean, you know, I was super shy and I was super insecure. Upper bound made you so close to people. Like I didn't realize this then, but like you ate with people, you slept around people, you were with people all the time so like it was constantly this thing of like one trying to prove that i was worthy to be hung around right because i was like kind of weird <laughs> to people you know what i'm saying i was a heavier person i was a heavier kid my gender expression wasn't initially you know at that time again we did not have the language that we have now for gender expression like you had like gay people knew what gay was and even if you were a girl or whatever interested in other girls, you were still considered gay. You know, we rarely use like lesbian or something like that. And, you know, that's kind of how it was. And so I couldn't act too into the class. And also I was intimidated by Tiff initially because I was just like, damn, like, but Tiff's demeanor too at the time was like, <laughs> you can't just step to me with anything. Like you have to kind of come to me with something worth coming to me with. You can't just talk to me about nothing. Oh, no. No, because Tiff had a way of flipping <laughs> shit and you look stupid. Oh, right there, man. Right there. And if you say something, 
and then she'll ask you a question or something, it'll throw your whole shit off, and you'll be uh, 16. 16? Uh, Talking about damn, I, what? I just came to say hi. Uh, you over here talking about an existential crisis right now, and I just came to say hello. That's how it was. <laughs> so I was very intimidated, thank you. I didn't know what to do with that at 16. All I knew was that I was impressed, but that I also couldn't just talk to Tiff or any adult at this time about how I expressed. It was more like if there was a common interest, we could talk about that. So yeah, like with Damon or somebody, I talked about music. All of us connected around music and they would give me CDs. They would download stuff on my iPod at that time. That was encouraging. And we, so, you know, and then there was like a studio at Upper Bound and we would go to the studio and we would make music and play around in there. So that was the level of connection that I, as a young person, was used to having with adults at the time. It was never like, hey, I'm thinking about this. This is, I have an attraction to such and such. If I would have said that at the time, I probably would have like passed out. Because it just would have been too much. It would have been overwhelming. It would have been like, it just would have been too much. It was easy for us then to have these kind of lives outside of the classroom that teachers didn't know nothing about until a scandal happened. (laughs) Until somebody was caught in somebody's room or something happened. That's how people kind of found out like, oh, okay. Case in point, I mean, this wasn't a scandal, but I remember... um, when I first got to Upper Bound, I was initially who gravitated toward me with these mean-ass black girls. They were just mean. They were just mean. And that's okay. You know, and not all the black girls were mean, but they it was a particular clique, and they was mean and shit, and it was what it was, and I had to get up out of that. I don't know how it happened to me. I don't know why they chose me, but I was like, okay, let me just sit somewhere else at lunch. And I remember this skinny black dude and this racially ambiguous person. And they were like, you should sit with us. And I was like, yeah, I should, you know, if y'all invite me, why not? And they so happened to be the first LGBTQ people, friends that I would have, Jonathan and Jocelyn. <laughs> so I hung with Jonathan and Jocelyn and it helped because we all had J's in our name. So, you know, but I remember one time we was kicking it in one of the dorms that Tiff would come through for tutoring. So Tiff came in there, saw all of us hanging out. Tiff asked me, I don't know if it was in front of them. It probably was because it's how bold Tiff was at the time. You gay? And I was like, no. I said it so fast. I remember saying it so fast. And I was like, nah, just because I hang with them don't mean but I had no, I first of all, I didn't know what was going on. I was just trying to be cool. I was trying to be myself you know, and not get bullied up here, (laughs) okay? But also, I was just kind of navigating what it was like to even maybe possibly be attracted to somebody or what any of that meant. You know, a lot of that wasn't even, it wasn't clear to me at the time. So yeah, I was saying shit like no and where that's weird. and, And I think, you know, that wasn't just happening for us. I think that was happening for a lot of people at that time, too, because we didn't have that kind of dynamic where it was like, okay, I can come to you 
you know, to talk about this. Like, cause I didn't see another out adult. That was the thing too. It was like, you know, it was very rare, especially like, I can't remember in upper bound if there were any like out queer gay folks on staff at that time, everybody was kind of like heterosexual, cisgendered, that sort of thing. So we didn't even have the kind of examples that a lot of young people have now. So it was really like we were navigating that shit on our own. And this was in San Francisco. So, I mean, if it was hard there, I can't imagine what it would be like to have grown up in the South or, you know, whatever. So that's kind of how that was. And that's how we were able to have those ulterior lives or whatever. There's so much there. And I appreciate it because it's so rich. And I don't even remember that interaction. And I don't even remember in part that part of me which is so intense. And what I know from a lot of folks who I've been mentored by is their presence with people is pretty similar to it was the way that I met them, actually. There's these stories and people hear these stories and it's really consistent. And what's scary to me is I don't really know or remember that person you're talking about. And if you were, which I want to happen one day, if you were to talk to some of my young people there may be some elements around intimidation that may still seem kind of consistent, but there's a lot that they're just, they might even be shocked. And so it's really powerful for me to hear stories about me, <laughs> particularly from other people's perspectives. What a lot of people don't know is that, how old are you now? 31 going on 32. So you're going on 32 and I'm going on 38 this year. And so I always joke that we're in the same decade now, but a lot of people don't know that when I was teaching you, I was very, very young. We were very close in age. When I first applied for Upward Bound, I got a hard no. And I was told by the staff, you're way too young to do this work and it's way too intimate. And I was so offended. I was so offended. <laughs> and uh, I went to Berkeley and did, did uh, some summer programs there for a couple of years and came back. But in many ways, I get it. I get it today and that there was so much about my own identity development that was not developed and that greatly informed how blunt probably I was with young people. Like being that age, I'm like, I just got out of high school four years ago and y'all were like juniors and seniors. Really, really weird dynamic. And this is the case with a lot of educators who come in as babies and who are teaching babies. Another thing a lot of people don't know is that you and I fell out for years off of very particular dynamics around how we communicated to each other, how I communicated to you. And it wasn't until very recently where we were able to, and I think oddly because of our own journeys and learning ourselves better, and being more comfortable with ourselves, were we able to heal ourselves and actually show up uh, meaningfully for each other? So I think yeah. it's important for our listeners to know that this relationship has wounds that got some fresh, fresh band-aids on. But we, I believe that we both knew the significance of our work and who we are and what that means for me anyway, to be in relationship with each other and to continue to be in relationship. But I want to back up a little bit, like in many ways, there's this denial. And I'm also hearing that you were not given safe spaces to explore. And you're a writer, a prolific writer. And correct me if I'm wrong, but your writing is part of your wellness. Oh, yeah, absolutely. 
Absolutely. So what I'm interested in is how those forms of denial and that lack of people, adults, teachers curating spaces for you to safely explore, how that impacted your expression, your writing, and how that may have impacted your wellness. The first poem I wrote, I was 10 and I was like in fifth grade and my teacher really loved what I wrote. And she was just like, oh, you, you should write another one of those things. And at the time I didn't know what I was doing was poetry. I didn't know that. I just read a lot. The first poem I wrote was about the Middle Passage and the ancestors. I don't know how I knew anything about all, any of that. I tell that story to say that a lot of my gift in my writing, I used to try to seek validation from people. So it was a way to get people into me. At that time, I hadn't really thought of it as anything beyond, oh, this is a creative thing that I do to get people to like me. You know, I was so caught up in people pleasing at that time. And I was a young person and, you know, the, the kind of dynamic that I came from as a child really kind of set the tone or set the pace for that. I was so young in my gift, I didn't know that I would be who I am today, you know, whatever that is, you know. So when I was at Upper Bound, again, yeah, I knew I could write really well. And I was like around folks at that time who were like doing music. I love music. And so a lot of what I was doing was really just trying to impress people. I was trying to impress people with my gift. That's kind of how I think it played a part in one sense to be a kind of tool to get validation. But in another sense, I wasn't doing my gift for me as a young person at the time, the way that I should have been or the way that I could have been had I known better, had I felt safe enough to be myself. A lot of it was to, you know, to get people to like me and to find me interesting and I was brilliant and I was intellectual and all of these things, but I didn't know how to love myself when I was a kid. I'm in a space now where I can see that now. So everything that I was doing, I was trying to get love from these adults or these young people, you know what I'm saying? And so I was super prolific because that was my motivator. What it looked like was, oh, this kid is like really talented. But I was talented and I was hurting. A lot of that writing helped me navigate things that I couldn't say to people out loud. It gave me a way to interact with my emotional world. You know, just how I was feeling was super important because I couldn't go to anybody and tell them how I felt. That just wasn't what we did then, you know. And I mean, even to some degree now, I mean, I think the internet is fascinating. We had, was it MySpace at that time? So you go back after classes and then you rush to the little computer area, boost somebody off and go check your messages on MySpace and update your little profile. And that's kind of how, you know, to some degree, you kind of got an inside kind of look into how people felt. But like talking to people about that, that just wasn't what we did unless, you know, you had close friendships. You spend so much of your time trying to fit in. So that was a lot of it for me. Like, I knew that I was really gifted. I knew that I could write well. But, like, inside, I was really 
I don't know if I would say closed off, but there was a wall for me. And so in terms of wellness, you know, that whole thing, writing was a process for me to tap into the very things that I couldn't necessarily talk about with other people, but that was very real and was happening to me, you know, on a very consistent basis. And so I did stuff like You Speaks. I did Teen Poetry Slams. And all of that was like, oh, my God, you're on the stage. You've got the city looking at you. How could they deny anything that I'm saying? Because I'm up here. I have the courage and the bravery to come up here. Because, you know, a lot of my thing, too, was I would get up on stages with people and I would know that in people's minds, like, what you got to say? I knew how I was perceived to some degree because I was a studier of people, too. Like, I would watch people's reactions and responses to me. So I knew going in with my gift, I'm like, watch, I'm going to do something and it's going to change your mind. And that used to be my thing. That used to be my high. So I would get on these stages and I knew how people would look. Are you big? What you got to say? And I would hush people. I knew that I could do that. That was clear for me. But the motivation for doing that was because I'm trying to get you to like me. You know, that later on developed into gigs and things for nonprofits, community organizations, all of that. Go to schools, you do poems, you do this, you do that. Started to kind of bleed into social activism for me, which was something I cared about. But again, I was not tending to my well-being, right? I wasn't tending to like how I felt about me and how to use my gift in that way to kind of go back. And at that time, I couldn't because I was too young. I was like way too young to kind of do that work. So I spent a long time being great, being prolific and trying to please people. When you talk about being courageous, you're saying some things that folks very late in the game would never admit right? about motivation in this work. And I think if we're honest, so much of our work is around this attempt to be seen, to be validated. And I don't really have judgment attached to it. I'm just interested in that. But I know that there's something very different in how you approach this work today. And now you are no longer in the San Francisco Bay Area, which is, you know, you talk about getting on stage and shocking people, people who grew up with you, people who helped to mentor you. We're shocked by that that shy Jari, you know, is living on another part of the country, on the completely other side of the country, doing their thing, you know, sustaining <laughs> right. themselves. More importantly, you have now become an educator. And whether it's graduate students that you have taught or, or the folks who you are in community with, who you workshop with, how different is your approach now? as it relates to your identity, your courageousness, and your wellness. Yeah. It was so much from that kid to becoming an adult at that time. So, you know, in that transition of, a, of adulthood and trying to figure that out, so much of what worked as a young person then did not work for me in that transition. So, like, you know, when I was doing a lot of, my writing and everything, I wasn't facilitating that. Like in terms of like what to do it for, I wasn't facilitating that. Like other people were facilitating that. So working with you was like, 
okay, I still get a chance to write. I still get a chance to be in community. So for many years, I was just cool with that. And it wasn't necessarily bad to do those things because at that time, that's just kind of how it was. And I didn't have the concept of the training to recognize at the time, like, oh, you're butting into this writer. And back home, you know, like, yes, like we have a literary community. And let me not say too much because I don't want nobody to listen because it's not like that. But it's just I'm just saying we had a literary community and, and it was very local. What I wanted, my dreams were so big, but I didn't know at the time. Glimpses of my aspiration and my ambition came from working with you. Because I didn't know you could create something out of nothing. So I spent years watching Tiff like, yeah, let's do a TV show. And I'm sitting there like, a TV show? <laughs> how are we finna do a TV show? I don't know how to write no script. This is what we gonna do. And I spent years watching Tiff do that. So to see that example was incredible for me because I was like soaking that up. And at the time, it didn't really seem, because <laughs> I kind of was, you know, I, I used to mess up here and there. Um, just, you know, living my life, trying to get it together. But I was retaining a lot of that and watching that example. You know, it was hard to find that example anywhere else. But also in that, though, it was like I didn't have a sense of myself as an artist. I didn't have a sense of myself as a writer in like what I wanted to do. So while certain projects that we would take on would center me, that was like the beginning of me trying to figure out what I was made of. And so in terms of wellness and all of that, there were certain things I had to do for my wellness that looked shady to you and to other people. And then this gets back to the wound. So like, you know, with Tiff, it was like, because I was one of them kids who saw Tiff and was like, I want to work with Tiff forever. I just want to be a part of whatever that is because that was so influential to me. So I was Tiff's TA. I followed Tiff to Kip. I was coming up to Kip from City College, messing around, just trying to see what's up because I didn't have nothing else to do. <laughs> so it was like, yeah, why not? But, you know, in the midst of all of that was like, it was a weird power dynamic too. Encountering that weird power dynamic at the core of it was like this whole thing about tough love. And I did not do well under that. Because at the time, who Tiff was, because Tiff was building upon her rep too. Like Tiff is killing it in all these other areas, whatever. But what people didn't know was like, okay, but when you're really hanging with Tiff like that, you finna get burned. Because you know what I'm saying? At the time, just like, who we were, who we were developing into, we didn't have language for a whole bunch of shit at the time. And I didn't know this was true for her at the same time, but it was definitely true for me. So like that tough love thing, I was suffering because my personality, my everything did not fit under that model of like, you just gotta get up and you just gotta do it. The push through, the power through stuff thing, that didn't come natural to me emotionally, that was not natural. Like you have to push how you feel. 
that was not natural to me, and especially not as a writer, because everything that I wrote was impacted by and informed by how I felt. So that was how I made sense of the world was through how I feel. So you telling me, coming to you, no matter how you feel, is we going to do this or not? That was Tiff's thing. Whether we was going to finish the objective, get it done. And while I learned so much from that, that shit broke me. That's just not who I was. And that's not what I needed either. And the thing about it, I would want to say, like, oh, Tiff, like, this doesn't feel good. But who Tiff was at the time? The thing is, and I don't know if people still do. I'm sure they do. And that's great. People idolize Tiff. Like, Tiff was, like, infallible. Like, also, like, oh, my God. You be around Tiff. Oh. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Do y'all know? Okay. Ooh. So you couldn't say nothing. What could you say? By the time I look around, because it was like me, Tiff, and then young people. By the time I'm looking around, it's a team of other adults. So I'm like, shit. It's, you got a whole team that worship you. And I'm sitting here hurting. What do I say in the midst of that? If I was to come out and say anything, people would have looked at me like, what are you talking about? So doing this thing around wellness, it's like wellness for me then was my grandmother has been diagnosed with dementia. My family and me are having problems. You not understanding. And there's no way to come to you about that. I got to go. And the thing was, I never imagined myself leaving H2O. I loved H2O. I loved everything about what we were to one another because I did not have that in my life. You know, that sense of belonging, the after hours kicking it, those were some of the greatest times of my life because I did not have that belonging, that connection with anybody. Even now, like, as an adult, I mean, there are things that have bonded me to people, but usually it's through like traumatic higher educational situations, you know, so we bonded over that. But like to be goofy, to kick it, to hang out, I didn't have that. So like having to walk away from that was one of the hardest things I had to do. But I had to go because we were not on the same page. It just was like, couldn't really get there. And I think in my way, I was trying to say, hey, I'm not in a good place. And the reasons why shit isn't looking the way it should on my end is because there's some shit going on. With Tiff, it was like, is we doing this or not? Like, you not coming the way I need you to come, but somebody else can be in your place. Like, I remember that conversation. And this was at the peak of like my grand, you know, my grandmother had just been diagnosed with that. And I was like in my early to mid twenties and I was in my undergrad at San Francisco state and I would come to leadership at that time, right after class. And sometimes I wouldn't have eaten or I wouldn't have had what I needed, but I knew I had to be here. And I was so depressed because there was a shit happening to me that I couldn't talk about. 
and you came in with this Letterman jacket on with somebody else one day, and you sat down, and you looked at me and was like, are you happy here? Do you want to be here? And I didn't know what to say. Mm. And then you were like, you know, because somebody else could be here. Somebody else could take your place. And in my, everything in me, because I loved H2O, because I love, but I was hurt and I was hurting and my grandmother was sick and she was my world. I said, silent to myself, you got it. I ain't coming back. Because I couldn't. And there was no way to have that conversation. So wellness at that time looked a lot like doing shit that looked shady and looked a certain way on the surface that if we would have just had a conversation, like a real conversation, it would have made a lot of sense. We just couldn't get there at that time. Yeah. You just brought the real housewives version of mentorship to the podcast. This is what I'm here for. <laughs> you just took the ratings through the roof, Jari, uh, on that. And, you know, on a serious note, I'm only resourced now enough to hear that and not be defensive. Right. Two years ago, I would have still been able to give you a list of things, of rebuttal. And I'm like, yo, what's most important is that you needed a very particular type of care and community, and that was not present. And we did not offer that. I did not offer that to you. And I've said before, and I've said on this podcast, like, I am deeply sorry and hurt with you in hearing, like, that's just not cool. And hearing those direct quotes, that is some accountability that, God dang, I need another $6,000 for the therapy. You know, to really show up meaningfully. But what's really intense is like, yep, that was the hype. And you know why that was the hype? Because that's how I was mentored. I was mentored in a way where it was like, yo, we got stuff we got to do. Are you with us? Are you not? You know what I mean? And so hearing that, now we had a language to know how toxic that is. Yeah. Now we had a language to understand that to your point, oh my God, that hit me so hard. Because yes, so many of us are mentored in a way to step away from feelings, to reach these end goals, to reach these objectives that we associate and align with freedom, we align with liberation, we align with community. And to your point, like that was a gut punch right there. Is that your work is about feeling. <laughs> All of our work is about feeling. And at some mm-hmm. point, our activism, what is considered to be radical work, somewhere along the way, it became okay for that not to be centered. Yeah. Yeah. And I have a lot of grief for all of us who are a part of that, who pass that on to other folks. And I love the way this is going because this is not what we envisioned necessarily. Maybe you did. Maybe you had some curveballs in there. <laughs> I want to know, and maybe this is how we close, how do we get to where we are today then? A lot of people are not telling the truth about how they have been harmed through mentorship, how the core of their identities have been neglected in their relationships and doing this work. A lot of people are not honest or, as you said, they just don't have the relationships to be able to communicate that. 
we at the beginning of stages of something really important. And even as we talk sometimes, you know, it ain't what it was and it'll never be. And maybe that's a really good thing. Maybe that's a great thing because the foundation of that was not good anyway. But I believe that you and I are onto something really beautiful and powerful. Mm. And I'm hoping we can close with you sharing, like, how do you think any of this was even possible? Yeah, no, this is important. Because I ain't come on here to throw you under the bus. <laughs> hey, 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 you told your truth. Ain't no throwing no body under no bus. Facts. But I wanted to be real about that part of mentorship because that was a part of how I learned. And what changed the way I did things with my own young people. But, you know, in stepping away I had a lot of other experiences and found myself really leaning on my craft more for me and being in spaces where that was the absolute necessity. It was like I had to unlearn everything to relearn new things. I started really trying to be serious about my writing. I really wanted to do this poet thing and I was seeing examples of it across the country that I was not seeing in San Francisco. So I went to my first writing workshop at Kalalu and I didn't know what the hell Kalalu was at the time, but it was a writing retreat, a very prestigious writing retreat for black writers. And that boot camp broke me open in a way that changed my life. It changed everything I thought I knew about writing and my intentions to write because when I first got there the one thing that they hit me with initially was we know you can write because you wouldn't be here if you couldn't but we don't know nothing about you you're not in none of this and that shook me and I began to recall all the work that we did all the time that we spent I was writing these poems I wasn't writing about myself. I was having these experiences, going through these things, wasn't writing about myself. Coming out of that, it didn't just change my work, it changed the way that I had to live my life. So coming back to the city, coming back to community, I began to look at situations differently in terms of, am I prioritizing myself? Am I prioritizing my my well-being? Do I feel good in my relationship with people? How is this growing me? And so after years and years of chasing that and like having different agendas that like was not facilitated by others, but like I'm chasing this thing. I'm chasing this. I'm chasing wellness. I'm chasing this through my craft. I'm chasing this. It gave me the space to be like, it's certain shit I'm not going to accept no more. It gave me a sense of that confidence that I lacked then. Just to kind of fast forward, yeah, therapy too is a thing. I was in therapy when I went to go do my MFA. I was in therapy way more consistently than I had been in my life before. So a lot of stuff was coming up, just a lot of stuff. And, you know, stuff with you was so tough because it was like you were one of the most influential people in my life. And to this day, you know what I'm saying? Still. And so I knew. I had a lot of love for you, but there was so much that had happened and that we had never talked about that it was like, 
I couldn't always access that love outside of being like, damn, but Tiff hurt me though. And that I felt like in those moments I had to protect myself. But what ended up happening was I was toward the end of my MFA. I lost my grandmother. My grandmother died. That was really hard for me because she was everything for me. So losing her, I felt like I didn't have any safety nets anymore. I just didn't have. <laughs> so I started to think about forgiveness at a point. I was just so angry about a lot of things. And the work that I was doing when I was writing poems like Dysphoria and uh, some other poems that I have online, I was writing through my past, who I was as that kid, you know, seeking that love and not getting it, people who meant well, but had ultimately failed me. Then all of my work, when I centered it around myself at that time, that's what was coming up. So I knew in order to move past all of it, I had to access some type of forgiveness. So I ended up writing a letter because, you know, things were happening for me, like good things. I had gotten a grant at that time. I was graduating uh, from my MFA at the time. And, you know, I didn't graduate from high school. So this was like a huge thing. And I was looking around. And I was like, damn, you know, I have all the success. This is what I wanted. But I'm not sharing it with who I wanted to share it with. You know, I wanted to share that with you. It took a lot for me to come back. And that was courageous. It was just so much courage to come back and say, yes, this person hurt me, but I'm in a space where I can recognize that I have a lot of love for them. And if there's something to be salvaged here, let's figure that out. But I had to come to that on my own. You know what I'm saying? But that was really how we were able to get back. And so when we talked, it wasn't the same, you know what I'm saying? I noticed, like, okay, you're listening to me. You ain't talking about I'm Cornell West <laughs> and in a bad way and all that. All that rebuttal and all that was mm -hmm. gone, mm -hmm. you know? And I was like, all right, cool. And I was like, get my feet wet in that. But now it's like you and I can say that we love each other and it's not weird. It's not nothing. It's just facts. Mm -hmm. And that's powerful because i didn't grow up with that but also like we came through so much shit that to be able to say that and mean it like our relationship now the way i feel about you now is totally different from then like a lot of that is gone you know what i'm saying and by the grace of god like that has been removed from my heart like that anger that i had it's not there and i think a lot of that came because we were able to come back and like do it again <laughs> start over again and like meet really meet in the middle because like you had gone through your own transformations you know back in the day like that was not the thing you know tiff was never really vulnerable unless it was like on some after hours tip you know and it was rare but what really uh shook me in coming back was like yeah tiff was super vulnerable you know what i'm saying and i was like okay there's a lot of growth that I can see that like, you know, had that not have happened, like we wouldn't have been able to talk. You know what I mean? Like, just, so I think a lot of the pieces were in the right places at the right time for us to come back. And I'm really thankful for that. You know what I'm saying? Like 
everything that happened, you know, it's like, man, I was watching other people, like people that I knew from like SF State and stuff, celebrating you and all this other stuff. And I was like, damn, bro, I actually known this person for forever and we're not talking. That's so crazy. You know, so I, I felt the way. I was definitely jealous of that. I was like, oh, I don't like that. How the hell y'all benefiting from something that I did not get to benefit from? And that you set the foundations to. And that as well. Because it took me to leave for y'all to get that. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you always spit the truth, but I, I think it's being conveyed in a way that I just haven't heard. And so I have a lot of appreciation and to your point, the work that, you know, you went off and did some work and I went off and did some work and therapy for me has become really vital in that, you know, I had a number of students. It was you and, you know, there was some other folks who were just like, yo, I am hurting. And yes, I benefit from this program. I benefit from the resources, but it does not have to be this way. Yeah. And I was able to learn from folks that we can experience greatness outside of pain, outside of pressure. And those things are valuable in certain spaces. And also, particularly as Black people, we have to create safe spaces for each other as much as possible. And whether or not you know that, you were my safe space as well. You know, I was, as I told you when we were coming back together, I was growing up with you. And I think people don't fully understand that. They assume the college degree means something, but I was growing up with you. And uh, what an honor it was and still is to grow up and grow old together. We got to get out of here, but I don't know if you want to share something with folks because they may think I'm biased or something because of our relationship, but I'm trying to help them understand <laughs> the GOAT status that is before them. You got anything you want to share real quick? Oh, man. Let me, uh, yeah, sure. Uh, I'll read this poem that is called Interior. It's one of the more joyful poems that I have. Interior. I strolled the body's wilderness, those last truly wild places, an attempt to wrest joy from its hiding place. The body's expanse, its granular pleasures undisturbed, its strict reserves, its flora, its fauna. This is how I live with what has been done in the dark. Something inside me grows lips against the body's intolerable ravine, its treacherous gulches surely meant to drown me an impossible sorrow, something within reaches toward the natural light, a wild phenomena, its act of witness, an untethering in the body's closed quarters, its wild notes, a defiance, a disobedience. What I mean is joy is a wild thing, interior, rendered in the wilderness of my body when loosed. Oh, you know, there it is, everybody. You know, yeah, there it is. I tried to tell y'all. Definitely, you can follow me at jab underscore poet on Twitter. You can follow me on Instagram at sojari s o j a r i all lowercase. 
to find out more about what I'm doing. You can also go to my website to find out a little bit about what I've done at jaribradley.com. But for the most up-to-date information, you're going to want to follow me on social medias. So, yeah, you know, thank you so much, Tiff, for having me up here and also just allowing the world to know what we've been through, but also to showcase the love that we have for one another. And, yeah, let's keep doing this thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's been an honor, Jari. I love you, and I love how you said it. When we say it, we mean it. I love you, and... uh, Thank you so much. Absolutely. In this episode, we explored teacher identity as it relates to wellness. Dr. Nadal reminds us of how critical it is for teachers to have an understanding of their own identities outside of just teacher. He reminds us that students can pick up on how connected teachers are to their own identities and how that modeling of identity can open up possibilities for the future. We explored and learned about cultural wisdom and expression as tools in developing and understanding our identities and how teachers should be critical of how they are mentored, especially if that mentorship does not center feelings of accountability, individual stories and so as we close I bring us back to my experience in that basement where my body was telling me this is not it and we invite you today to somatically tap in to what your body is telling you about your work and the relationship that you have to it and how the identities that have come often from trauma, the positionalities that have come often from trauma are informing what your body is telling you right now in this moment. We invite you to do the sacred and spiritual work to unlearn what is necessary in order to ensure that both you and the communities that you serve are well. We say goodbye to the days of martyrdom. We say goodbye to the days in which one form of wellness compromises or is compromised for another. And today we hold fast to and seek to center for future generations our collective wellness. Thank you for listening to this episode of Drawing from the Well. I'm your host, Tiffany Marie. This podcast was produced by John Reyes and music by King Most. Join us as we continue the conversation at youthwellness.com.